Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Tina Brown. She's a publishing magnate who became the editor of the British magazine Tatler when she was just 25 years old. She went on to be the first female editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, and she founded The Daily Beast and then headed to Newsweek. Lately, though, Tina's spent her time on one of the most riveting and juicy beats in the business, the British monarchy. She describes it as a, quote, more than 1,000-year-old institution with a 96-year-old CEO and a septuagenarian waiting in the wings. She's written two books on the topic, The Diana Chronicles in 2007 and the much-anticipated new release, The Palace Papers. I've known Tina for a long time and have been looking forward to dishing the latest British stories with her, from William and Kate to Meghan and Harry, and of course, the most disgraced royal of them all, Prince Andrew. So let's dig in. Tina, welcome to Sway. It's great to see you. So nice to see you. You know, you've written a lot about the royals. You've been an expert. You've commented at various events and stuff like that. So tell me why this became your focus besides you're quite good at it. I find this saga, this royal family saga, endlessly interesting because of the tension that you see between the thousand-year-old institution that you just described at the beginning that is actually completely comprised of fallible people, a family. So. On the one hand, there is the monarchy and all of the kind of customs, traditions, rituals, you know, restrictions that define it. And on the other hand, it's all on the back of this family that has its miscreants, its 'er ne'er-do-wells, its successes, its failures. And of course, for the last 70 years, has really been held together by Queen Elizabeth II, who is kind of the last person who knows how to behave in (laughs) in the British Isles and, you know, will soon be with us no more. So that's really, to me, the interesting part of it. And and a sense of, you know, having written about uh, Diana, as I did in 2007, endlessly interested in the sort of the long shadow of what that sort of tumult created, essentially, in that family in the 20 years since, as we get into the twilight uh, of the Queen's reign. So you talk about two things, the monarchy and the people. So talk a little bit about what the monarchy is right now. And what has it changed in the past 20 years? Uh, Well, George V figured out that the monarchy had to be comprised of a family that essentially was like a a sort of a sacral version of the royal family where they represented the British people at their very best. So he's the one who really institutionalized this tension that that I described. But they are trying to figure out essentially how to evolve into the modern world because in some ways, because the queen has been so perfect, because the queen has never put a foot wrong, because she's been there for 70 years, you could argue that sort of the evolution of the monarchy has been somewhat blocked because she has been able to live that way, continue that way. She and Philip continued and continued and continued. And now it's about to go away and simply has to be revised. Um, but 
What do people in Britain care about the royals? And of course, Americans, I think, just love it because of the crown at this point. Right. Well, a lot of the young people, if you ask them, they'll say it means absolutely nothing. But here's the thing. I mean, people keep saying that about the monarchy again and again and again. Every time there is some big drama or some big celebration, the streets are utterly packed and thronged. And 2002, the Queen's Golden Jubilee, it was the first jubilee she'd had since Diana died. There was a real anxiety that, like, People hadn't forgiven her for all of that period that no one was going to show up. Well, it was absolutely a blockbuster. I mean, it was just, you know, millions of people out. It was absolutely massive success. Same thing happened again in 2012 with the Diamond Jubilee. Every time there was a wedding, I mean, it always becomes a massive sort of festival of excitement about the royals. So I think there is this great undertow in the British people that actually does feel very connected to the monarchy and wants it to survive. It really isn't much movement for it to go. I think it is the crown. What what does that get right and get wrong? Because that's how people think of it these days. And of course, now they've been in the Diana years. They do. Well, that's going to be quite dramatic, actually, I think. I mean, look, the Crown, I think, did a fantastic job sort of reviving the royal family in a strange way for a whole new millennial audience, actually. The first couple of seasons were absolutely magically great, I thought. But I did feel that there's quite a lot wrong that they had. I mean, Prince Philip was kind of portrayed as a sort of petulant fop who just was always having tantrums and so on. And that really was unfair. I mean, Philip definitely uh, felt constrained, definitely had moments of eruption and so on with the Queen. And of course, very likely his eyes strayed as well. But he was never this kind of spineless, pathetic figure. He got better. He got better. He got better. There were a lot of protests about it, actually. And he did get better in the subsequent episodes. Yes, he did. I I can't imagine the royals like the crown, or maybe they do. They started by liking it. Now they very much don't like it. (laughs) Oh, really? Because... Because it's got nearer and nearer and they're very concerned about what's going to happen in the next season because the last thing that Prince Charles needs is for another generation to kind of get a big ladle of the fact that he was a cad to Diana and he did treat her badly and he was unfaithful and Camilla and all of that. That He does not want to see this season come out. Well, it's coming and we're all excited. But It's coming. Let's get back to your book because that's the real thing. Um, so let's talk about Queen Elizabeth. You were talking about at the center of this. So how has she maintained her power for 70 years and what are her best and worst qualities? Well, the Queen has turned out to be a really skillful CEO. She always comes down in the end on the side of what's best for the crown, what's best for the monarchy. And Because the monarchy is built on a family, that has often meant painful kind of family decisions. You know, for years, she would not accept Camilla, even though she was the love of her son's life. I mean, she wouldn't even let her come to his 50th birthday after she'd been his mistress for God knows how long. If you talk about brands, no one is more attuned to their brand than the queen. There is no need for anyone to tell her what is right for her to do or wrong for her to do. She is so sure of who she is. She is the definition of authentic. So no one can ever make her do something that's, quote, false, you know, for her brand. She's just perfect at it. But there are times, of course, when she does dither. In fact, her family refer it uh, to it as ostriching, putting her head in the sand. She doesn't like, obviously, who would, making decisions that sometimes make her family unhappy, but which she knows, actually, she's going to have to do. So she ostriches for a while, and she comes out, and she makes some swift, lethal decision. Once she's decided to make that decision, she makes it. So where do you think this quality comes from, being ruthless in this particular way? From her mother, from her father? The monarchy is a ruthless business. It's about surviving. It's about surviving for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's about keeping 
the sheen, you know, the potency, the mystique of the crown intact, and the tradition surrounding it, the constriction surrounding it, the hierarchy surrounding it. It's something in which the queen was really marinated. Don't let's forget she got to the throne when she was 25 years of age. And her mother, the queen mother, the laughing, powdery queen mother, who Cecil Beaton said was like a marshmallow forged in a welding machine, she was tough as, as old boots. And I think that the queen, uh, her daughter, was sort of raised in that same mold. So what happens to the monarchy when she dies then? If she's been this most important thing, been through, what, a dozen prime ministers, what happens when she dies? Well, there's going to be the most huge national identity crisis, I think, in England. I mean, I, I think, you know, people won't know how to be British anymore without the Queen. I mean, it's just like, don't forget, 70 years, that's like three generations. Nobody... So it's on par with Queen Victoria, right? This is... Yes, and even more, because we're now in a multimedia age, too. Queen Victoria... There was a tsunami of grief after she died. But then, you know, again, her son, Edward the um, Seventh, like Charles, he came to the throne late. He was in his 60s. Um, you know, he did a decent enough job and he was a kind of shock absorber for the next reign. And I kind of think that's what will happen in Charles. A lot of people are very pessimistic about Charles taking over. I actually am not one of those. I think it's much better for Charles to follow the Queen than William, actually. So he's a transitional figure. Yeah, he's a transitional figure. And he can do a lot of things that for William might be harder. You know, he's less experienced than his father. His father, he's met every head of state in the world. He's very accomplished in his own way. And his own particular passions for uh, uh, environment and his long, long-standing belief that climate change was a huge issue that nobody wanted to talk about and didn't. You know, that was his issue, is his issue. And so he does have that authentic thing. Right. But he has, his popularity is so much lower than Elizabeth's at 46% favorable. Yes. His popularity is pretty low. Why? Because we know too much about Charles. He has always been something of an Eeyore feeling. You know, one of his <laughs> favorite mottos is, oh, just my luck, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just my <laughs> luck. I mean, everything goes wrong. Yeah. However, yeah. I actually think he'll surprise people. I, I, I think he will. What about the rumors that he may abdicate in favor of William? <laughs> no, you're laughing. Why anybody thinks that? I mean, Charles has, is so desperate for this freaking job. I mean, you know, he's waited like 50 years for this. I mean, there's just no way. And as for Camilla, you think she's going to give up being Queen Camilla after mm -hmm. all of this time? So he will not be abdicating in favor. She she wants to be nope. queen. He wants to be no king. No abdicating for Charles. No abdicating. But he, he can't help but be in the shadow. He was in the shadow of his mother and he's in the shadow of his son too. Yep. There's constant tension uh, about that. I mean, Charles has lived his life always in the shadow of somebody, you know, his mother, and then the worst for him, Diana, which he can never shake. And then just when he thought he was emerging, you know, into the spotlight, guess what? You know, William and Harry, I mean, William <laughs> was the most charismatic heartthrob you could possibly imagine. I mean, he was so gorgeous. And of course, Harry, you know, has a lot of charisma. There's no doubt about it. Everyone would rather read about them anytime and their wives. So once again, Charles is in the shadows, yes. So Prince William is the modern face of the royal family. How will he switch things up when he's in charge? Yeah, I think that he will do quite a lot. William is not cutting edge, but he will be, I think, much more like his grandmother. You know, the queen was very conservative and um, cautious. He seems like a young fogey to me. That's what he seems like. I think he's better than that, actually, but I think he's cautious and I think he does want to modernize. I, I think he wants to say, I have got these passions and I'm going to pursue them. Mm -hmm. And he's the good son as opposed to Harry the rogue, right? What's their <laughs> relationship like now and how did that happen? It, it's very, very sad, actually. 
these two were really, really close. I mean, it doesn't matter who you talk to. They really were bound together by having lost their mother so young. I mean, Harry was only 12, and William was this big brother that he just consoled him. I mean, it was very, very close a relationship. Really, things began to get iffier when Harry came out of the army after 10 years. And that was really when it first hit Harry that he was the second son. I mean, it might sound ridiculous, but Diana had raised her boys to be the same. It was always like, we must treat them the same. But they were never going to be the same. And at a certain point, their destinies diverged. William had to go the direction of being groomed to be the future king. Harry was all right while he was in the army. He was actually an accomplished soldier, and he did very, very well in the army. He really found his vocation. But it's hard to stay in the army if you're not remotely book smart. I mean, you know, Harry's virtually never cracked a book in his life. And to stay in the army today, you have to be far more intellectually digital. Yeah, you'd be a lot more proficient. So after 10 years, he comes out of the army and he goes, right, like, what am I going to be doing? He went off and he started the Invictus Games. He brought together the disabled veterans in games like the Special Olympics, essentially, for veterans. And Invictus was imaginative. I mean, it was connective. In fact, it really has been the most successful royal initiative that I think we've seen in the last sort of 30 or 40 years. So he did that and that made him feel, you know, I have star power. I could be a global figure. And actually, I'm told that, I mean, for William, I think he watched that slightly askance. I mean, how did Harry get to have something that was so impactful? Then with Kate in William's life, the tight sort of brotherhood now has to deal with with an, you know, a new figure in it. And actually, Harry and Kate were always very close. He always saw her as a sort of big sister figure. But inevitably, you know, when your best bud has a girl in his life he's going to marry, you gradually become more marginalized. And for a time, you know, there was a lot of time for two or three years when he came out of the army when Harry just felt like Bridget Jones. (laughs) (laughs) He felt that he was like the adorable, bougie couple of William and Kate. And where was his fun, fiery brother? You know, he'd gone. So Harry got very unhappy, really, and his own relationships weren't working because the girlfriends just couldn't take the press. I mean, I do a big chapter in in the book, actually, which is all about the press stalking uh, the girlfriends. And it was pretty shocking as I reported that out, actually, how bad it was. I mean, what Harry experienced, you know, he was stalked, he was eavesdropped on, he was, it was a horrible, horrible Well, they all were. They all hate the press in that way. They all were, but Harry had it worse because he was more interesting than the others, (laughs) you know, and he was more of a carouser. He became absolute catnip for the press and they never let, let him alone. So, you know, he was very unhappy and he really fell apart is the truth. I mean, he started to fall apart, as he has said, and also really became quite competitive with William. You know, he felt... His interests were too similar to William's in a way. You know, he was passionate about Africa. He was passionate about conservation. And yet he felt that William got all the best gigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course right. he did. He was the, you know, he's the, be the king. Different. And then Megan. Along comes Megan, who tells him, you should have the best gigs, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he suddenly had a woman in Megan who was worldly enough, experienced enough to say, look, you know, you're, you're a star you know, in your own right. You know, you don't need all of this. You can do it on your own. And that's really where the great division became between Harry and William. Now, do you think it's her fault? Because you seem to favor Kate, and I feel she's a bit of an, she looks like a young fogey too, an anachronism to me. Um, I I actually feel very empathetic to Megan. I think in in England, where they hate (laughs) Megan, they think that I've been way too empathetic to Megan. 
I understand how she found it so darn difficult and how maddening she found it. But I also came to admire Kate very much too, because I mean, she, I started by thinking, well, she's kind of a milk toast, but actually, she's admirable. She really is. She took 10 years before William married her. Kate looked at the situation and she said, you know, I can do this. I, I will do it. I'm going to devote myself to it. Essentially, it's kind of like the secular version or the royal version of taking the veil. It really is. It's about saying, I will do this. And she has, actually. Yeah, she doesn't seem disgruntled by it. No, well, I think she's found it not as easy as people necessarily think. I think there have been many times when she's felt, you know, the press are agony. I think she's found it constricting. I think sometimes she's found it very painful, actually, living in that. But she has decided that's what she's going to do, and she's doing it. And I think you have to admire that, actually, because, you know, self-discipline isn't a very modern uh, attribute, essentially. But she does have it, and I admire her for it. So, but then Megan is not as disciplined, but she also is, has got a lot of star quality. And the comparisons between the two were really quite striking, as most people have pointed out. Yes, they were. Well, I mean, Megan, you could not find two more different women. I mean, here's Kate, who's so traditionally raised and conservative and cautious, like her husband. And, you know, Megan, who has this sort of natural star power, very dynamic and very worldly, actually. There's also the fact that, you know, in terms of the women of the palace, if you like, Megan is the only woman of color. All the other women are these white, you know, Protestant women who've all been to the same kind of schools, you know, speak yeah. the same kind of language. So she just felt, you know, was very much alone, I think, in that whole ambience. And also unwilling to accept, determined not to accept, uh, that Harry was in a hierarchy which put him... As she had been, I mean, one, one of the things that amused me the most was when I learned that Megan was always number six on the call sheet uh, when she was filming her, her Suits show. So that means that you're, the, you know, in sixth in order of importance. And essentially, she married number six on the call sheet in Harry because, <laughs> because Harry was actually number six. I mean, he was, by the time they were married, uh, he was the, the second son of the heir to the throne. And William had had three children. So he'd actually descended to number six. I mean, you know, he's going to go on going down. And that meant that although, you know, they were such huge celebrities on the world stage at that point, I mean, at that point, you know, Meghan was one of the most, probably the most famous woman in the world. But in terms of the palace and the monarchy and the hierarchy, she was number six on the call sheet. And she got, therefore, the budget that went with it, the opportunities that went with it, you know, the consideration that went with it. So what am I doing here? What, what am, am I, I doing, doing here? I mean, you know, in her world, star power is leverage, right? And if you don't get what you want, it's call my agent. Well, you can't call your agent at Buckingham Palace. You know, ultimately, you're just going to have to take it. How do you assess her claims of treatment of her because of her race? I'm sure that it was very difficult for her, for the reasons that I've said. She mm -hmm. was so much alone there. The diversity at the palace is, I think it's 8%. You know, she would have really had very little contact with anyone who looked remotely like her while she was married to Harry, is the truth. And I think she found that very difficult after a time. We'll never actually know what happened inside the family, you know, her, her allegations about what was said and so on. We won't know. Maybe we'll know when Harry writes his book. But they announced stepping back as senior members of the royal family in 2020, and then they went on a Let's Talk About It tour, which was quite astonishing, I thought. Um, I want to play some tape from Meghan and Harry's interview with Oprah in 2021. Meghan told Oprah she went into a royal life quite naively. But you were certainly no. aware 
yep. of the royals. Of course. And if you're going to marry a royal, then you would do research about what that would mean. Well, I didn't do any research about what that would mean. You didn't do any research? No. I've never looked up my husband online. I just didn't feel a need to because everything that I needed to know, he was sharing with me, right? Or everything okay. that we thought I needed to know, he was telling me. Hmm. I don't believe her on that one. <laughs> Google. Everybody Googles people. Everybody Googles. I Google people I don't even care about. Exactly. Like, no, that was very disingenuous, that, that yeah. clip that you played. And I think she was making a bigger point is that she didn't know what she was getting into. Which she did, I but can't. you know, here's the thing. And uh, this is where I completely don't understand Megan at all. I mean, when I talked to all the people she worked with at Suits, one thing that she was really known for was like getting notes about her role. You know, she was she wanted to know everything about what she had to do with that part. She was studying up, you know, she really put a lot of thought and work into her role. Why would she take on the biggest role of her life, which had such incredible constitutional implications and such a kind of lifetime of, you know, very clear choices ahead of her and not, as she said, spend any time researching what the role was. So that was disingenuous from your perspective. That was disingenuous. It would seem to me, if that's true, reprehensible, quite honestly, because it's a serious thing to marry into that family. And if it if it is true, I, I find it puzzling. I find her very canny. So that, that was surprising to me. Like, yeah. knows exactly what's happening. She's one of those people here in Hollywood, they see everything at a party. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I know one of her ex-colleagues told me that Megan used to play three-dimensional chess, as he put it. She always knew the subtext of everything that was going on. So I don't get that. I mean, I also think, of course, you fall madly in love and you decide not to see it. You know, you can say it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. You noted in an interview that they were addicted to drama, the pair of them, that this pair and this uh, us-against-the-world attitude was a disaster. Do you think they've made some bad choices here? I think that they've been, um, they've made very bad choices, I believe. I mean, I, I think that they could, not easily, but with some skill, they could have exited the royal uh, situation, leaving less scorched earth and opportunities behind them. What surprised me, one of the things that I found very surprising in my reporting was when one of the very close royal advisors really stunned me by saying, you know, we always thought that Harry would leave. We always thought it because he was so fragile. He was so combustible. He was so unhappy, frankly, in the constraints of the royal family. But what I think everyone was shocked about was the way they did it. I mean, you know, I, I said it was like the exit from Afghanistan, probably necessary. Yeah. Oh, God, but, but, I, I know, but it was. But with like maximum mayhem on the way out, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. Um, Why? Well, because they're very hot-headed. I, I always feel like William became a Windsor. And Harry became a Spencer. And the Spencers, if you go to Althorpe House, their, their stately home, and look at the pictures on the wall, they're all of these kind of like red-bearded, like, you know, swashbuckling, rampaging men in that family who just, you know, were very impetuous. And he's a very yeah, impetuous make guy. bad decisions. Make yeah. bad decisions. Yeah. And I, yeah. again, I, I was surprised that with Meghan, with being, who'd actually handled her own career very savvily, she doesn't seem to have been able to advise him correctly in this instance. So the disaster was for them. Do you think it was a disaster for the royal family? I do. I, I think it was a disaster all around. I actually think there is a Harry-shaped hole in the royal family now. And, uh, you know, Harry was beloved, actually, by the British people. And, and Meghan was absolutely, people adored Meghan when she came into the mix. So it was actually very, very sad 
for everybody that it went so wrong because, you know, they actually need Harry and Meghan now. You should see the Queen is failing and she's very frail. They kind of need Harry and Meghan to bring that star power and to be on the balcony at the Jubilee. We have to have a royal family up there. We can't have Andrew up there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll get to him in one second. (laughs) Meghan and Harry recently met with the Queen for the first time since they broke away. Is that the sign of the relationship on the mend? It's a sign of a cautious rapprochement. And I actually think that when when the Queen dies, I would not be at all surprised if some kind of new charter, as it were, with Harry is drawn up, because I think they're going to feel they do need Harry in some way, and he might get a bit more of what he wanted. I mean, he could be a kind of commuter royal, I guess. Uh, The problem is the money piece. You know, they wanted to make money, and the big tension there was conflict of interest. I mean, uh, you know, how do you work that? Yeah. Are there shades of Diana and what happened to Meghan and Harry, or was it very different? Well, I mean, the shades are that the Queen's great mantra after Diana died was never again. Well, of course, you can't say that now because we did have it again. And what you actually had was a member of the royal family, really Meghan, I guess, whose celebrity was greater than, or who felt that her celebrity was sort of greater than the brand of the firm, if you like that the whole point of being a working member of the royal family is, is that you, what you do supports the monarch. What you are doing is for the country, for the people of England. It is not to make money. It's not to be a star and be a celebrity. That's the difference between being royal and being a celebrity. So it, it's a completely different thing. And that was, of course, something Meghan really didn't grasp or didn't want to grasp. And uh, I don't know how you resolve that. That is the problem. What would Diana think of them? Would she be proud of them? Well, it's funny. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Diana would have done, would have been so pleased to see this. I don't think that Diana would have been that pleased to see this. I mean, Diana stayed in the royal family for 16 years, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, she, she left. She did, but not out of her own desire. She didn't leave. Mm-hmm. She would never have left if Charles, if her husband had been in love with her. So she didn't actually leave the royal family. She was divorced, you know, she had to leave the royal family. But even then, She continued to live at Kensington Palace, and she really saw you could make more change inside the family than leaving it. I mean, when Diana shook hands with the AIDS patients uh, without gloves when she went to Middlesex Hospital and had that extraordinarily powerful meeting with the AIDS patients, she was doing that as Her Royal Highness Princess of Wales. She knew that it was that stature, that, that diadem on her head, that position that gave her gesture, such she also a meaning. Had star power too, though. There huge, was something special. She had huge star power, but her star power became more potent because it was allied to monarchy. Mm-hmm. And I think she, I, so I don't know whether she would have been thrilled to see them off in Montecito, sort of Harry stripped of his military honors. What do you imagine is going to happen to them? I, I think that Harry's going to want to come back when the Queen dies to serve his country. And I think they will find a way to reel him in. And it's possible that Meghan... Maybe they will have a commuter arrangement. I don't know. I don't see Meghan ever wanting to go back. She disliked England. The tabloids were terrible. They were racist. They were terrible to her. She hated it. She, I think she just thought bastard to England. I mean, she just thought, I'm not going back. I don't like it. Yeah, she's an American. She's an American, but she's an American who doesn't like England. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Anna Winter, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Tina Brown after the break. 
This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Um, So let's talk about the most scandalous, disgraced royal of them all, Andrew. You've got a lot of attention for your Daily Telegraph excerpt on Prince Andrew's relationship with sex uh, criminal Jeffrey Epstein. He called Andrew a useful idiot. Um, (laughs) Talk about the the scandal around Andrew. And I'll note he's been accused of sexually assaulting Virginia Jufrey. Uh, when she was 17, he really denied the allegations of settled out of court with her for apparently $12 million uh, this past February. So talk a little bit about that scandal and what it's done, because this is disturbing. The Andrew scandal is a great tragedy, frankly, uh, certainly a tragedy for the Queen. You know, Andrew's been sleazy and seedy for many, many, many years. And this was almost like an inevitable end to it, essentially, because... He married uh, Sarah Ferguson, who was a tremendous spendthrift. She's also actually a very kind of warm, likable woman who's actually got a lot of friends. The Queen, in fact, is very fond of her. But it was a disastrous match, really, because they never felt they had enough money. Prince Andrew, as a second son, had about £250,000 to live as a working royal and do all of his you know, duties and patronages and so on, plus a small pension from the Navy. And that really was it. He, of course, he did also have an you know, apartment in Buckingham Palace. He, he lives in the Queen Mother's beautiful home in the park at Windsor. But, you know, he was living in a world where everybody was so much richer than him. Uh, you know, the kind of world that he wanted to be in, the world of business people and tycoons and celebrities and all the rest of it. Yeah, he would pop up in Silicon Valley all the time. I mean, everything was desperate. So gradually he basically, because he has no judgment, he is incredibly dim Uh, intellectually, and he has zero judgment and terrible taste in people, which is a very bad combination when you also happen to be a member of the royal family. So he was just constantly fraternizing with insalubrious characters. I mean, just the worst kind of unattractive kind of crowd. And it got worse and worse, and there were always scandals around him. So, I mean, at the same time, you know, he had the kind of sex drive of a sort of horny 14-year-old, which never changed, it seems. I mean, he just simply loved big-breasted cocktail waitresses, and, you know, he literally was like a 14-year-old boy. And all of this kind of came to a kind of peak, essentially, when 
Ghislaine Maxwell, his friend, who he'd known for many years, in a sense, you know, he was a great catch uh, for Ghislaine to give, bring into the orbit of Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein understood immediately, you know, what he could get out of Andrew, which was connections, some credibility. I mean, we may all laugh and scorn Prince Andrew, but, I, you know, many a, a consul has told me in different places that actually, you know, when Andrew would come to town, he was still the queen's son. I mean, let's face it, he was a queen's son. You could get people to come. No, he's a good, he's a good prop. He's a good prop. And Jeffrey Epstein saw that because he was always about, you know, who he could know and who he could influence and so on. So it was a disastrous meeting of forces in that sense. It, it was inevitable, essentially, that um, Epstein would bring him into the net with the young girls because, you know, he knew that's what Andrew, you know, his vulnerability in that sense to women. So, I mean, it was absolutely inevitable, I think. And he was used as a front for Epstein's business dealings. And then he was used as a front and he used to, you know, Andrew would go off on one of his trips and, and, and Jepstein, Epstein would come along and he would pick up the cream on the cake, as it were, for the people that Andrew met. So this settlement, how do you look upon that? What is the, why did he do that finally? Well, you know, Virginia Jeffrey was, you know, 17 years old. And uh, what she alleges is a horrible thing to allege. And there was nothing for it but to pay the settlement. Because once the photograph had appeared with him, with Virginia Jeffrey, his, his alleging that he didn't know her was so clearly something that nobody believed right, anymore. Right, right, All those celebrities do spend a lot of time taking pictures with people they don't know. Um, why didn't the royal family distance themselves from him and cut off his titles much earlier? Was it all Queen Elizabeth? Well, there is a very good, frankly, not attractive point that you have raised, that it took the Emily Maitlis interview of Andrew where he utterly self-immolated. I mean, he strapped on a suicide vest <laughs> and sat in that chair with Emily Maitlis. And... It really blows my mind, actually, the way the royals keep doing this. I mean, uh, when Prince Charles talked to David Dimbleby, when Diana talked to Bashir, when, you know, when Andrew did this, it's like, when are they going to understand that to get it, just don't sit in a chair with a really good journalist with a kind of ask-me-anything brief, you know? I mean, he just sat there and, uh, and, 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 and self-immolated. She was very specific about that night. Mm -hmm. She described dancing with you no. and you profusely sweating <laughs> and that she went on to have bath, there's a, there's possibly... A, there's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. And that was... Oh, actually, yes. I didn't sweat at the time because... I um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at, uh, and I simply it, it was it was it was almost impossible for me to to, to sweat, and it's only and it was after that that he was summoned to go and see Prince Philip, who was on his last legs, you know, at Sandringham. But nonetheless, you know, he kind of made it clear this was one meeting he was going to have with his son. And he basically said, to, told him that, you know, he was done. You know, they were cancelling him. But it took that interview to do it. And the fact is, is that before that, when all of these allegations about Vajufri were out there, the Queen really, you know, supported Andrew in, in trying to bury them. Yes, they were silent. Yeah. They were silent about it. So, I um, mean, in fact, she even gave him one of her highest royal orders, uh, pinning a medal on him at the very Why? time when just blind loyalty. Well, it was to him? about trying to say to people, "Don't come after Andrew." Did she learn nothing from how she treated Diana? I think that you know, 
if it's your son, if it's your children, I mean, how many of us have blind spots about our children? You know, I mean, Andrew was always sort of her favorite. He lived nearest to her. He's very close to her. And I'm sure that there was a large part of her that just could not believe he could be doing some of the things that, you know, I think that people get it wrong about their children. Yeah. Um, the monarchy has felt so scandalous for so long. It's become kind of like a TV show that never ends, not the crown, but a real one. Is it just going to keep chugging on indefinitely? I believe that it will trundle on unless for the immediate future, for instance, the only thing that could really make the monarchy collapse is if anything went wrong with the Cambridges, <laughs> William and Kate. I don't believe that the monarchy could survive a lurid divorce of the monarch. I, I think that that would not, I really don't think it could survive. But, you know, on the other hand, I mean, it survived an awful lot. <laughs> it, yeah. survived, it survived Henry VIII, you know, beheading yes, he did that. Uh, two of his queens. So, I mean, it survived a lot. Do you have a favorite royal? I just came to love the Queen at the end of this. I just find her sense of humor so tart, you know, so funny. She's so sort of canny. She's so grown up. And there is something very moving as well about her commitment to duty. I mean, she, she has done what she said she would do all the days of my life, as she vowed, has served the British people. But she's done it without any sort of, um, self-righteous, you know, look at me. She just did it. And so, yeah, she is my favorite, I have to say. So we talked a lot about figureheads. Let's talk about the actual government. Boris Johnson, your take in 2016 was that his joking concealed, quote, deeply opportunistic nature. And that's a nice way of saying he's a grifter. Um, What's your take now? Well, it's sort of unchanged. You know, I think it's sort of lamentable in a sense that at this very serious moment in the world, you know, Britain has still got this sort of joker at the lead, you know. I mean, the whole sort of scandal, you know, known as Partygate, where he was breaking all his own COVID rules. Right, he just it was just fine for attending yeah. a party. I mean, okay, it's petty stuff, but it's also not petty stuff because, unfortunately, what it really shows is exactly what I saw in him when I first met him, in, you know, in, at Oxford in, in 1986 or whatever it was, that, you know, he, he has no principles, actually. What was he like then? Same as Exactly the same. I mean, he's wildly entertaining and incredibly amusing and very smart. He's the greatest dinner partner you could possibly imagine. But he has absolutely no belief in any kind of rules and he has no principles. That's an, a kind of a lamentable set of characteristics if you're going to be the prime minister. So he just was in Ukraine. Is he getting better or is there someone else in the wings? He has. I think that over Ukraine, he's been shown himself to be better than uh, he has been. But it was also, quite honestly, and Boris would have seen it immediately, a great opportunity for Boris. Because, you know, this was such a big, horrific thing that's happened in Europe that uh, it certainly eclipsed Partygate for a long time, made that seem ridiculous and futile. So for Boris, it behooves him to be very, very good about Ukraine. Is his power waning? I actually think he'll survive for quite some time. I always thought he would survive the Partygate thing because he's just lucky. He's slippery and lucky. And he is charismatic and people like uh, star power, as we well know. And so he keeps pulling it out of the hat. So I think he'll be there for a while. I don't think he's going anywhere. That he's popular in Britain or just... His popularity has decreased greatly in Britain than what it was. But, you know, it's still about... Who else? Speaking of waning the publishing industry, magazines like Entertainment Weekend and Star are folding their print publications. You have had uh, a lot of to do with magazines over the years, but shifted. 
it's all completely blown up. It's amazing, really. It feels like it's just sort of the end of days when it comes to magazines. But I'm very excited as well by the, all the things that can be done. You know, I mean, you have to think, look, everything has changed, but you can still do great things in a very different way. What's the future of the industry from your perspective? I mean, I thought you might be the last editor standing, but it looks like it's Anna Winter of the old <laughs> editors. How does she, how does she hold? She's, she's a royal, right? She's basically <laughs> yes, that's, that's a good way of putting it. She is. I'll never, I'll never bet against Anna. I actually think the magazine industry is really just, you know, in its last days, which I'm sad about because there is a real craft and an art form to great magazines. And I certainly love putting them out. I really did. But, you know, I don't really read them now except for The New Yorker, which I still adore. And there's very good work being done in many of them. But, you know, I don't buy magazines at the train station. And I was a magazine junkie. So for me... So to- what do you do? You've moved from medium to medium. I've always watched you. You're, you're an unusual person, having been this sort of top-level editor. Well, you have to be, you know, I think you sort of have to be uh, a sort of news impresario and figure out other ways to tell stories. I mean, you know, you're doing it constantly. Um, and that's the way you... What you have to do. You know, I miss assigning you know, great stories from great writers. And the thing I most regret is that writers just are so kind of marginalized and minimized. And, you know, there are so many great, great talents who are literally scraping around, you know, being consultants and teachers. And, you know, they don't have a way to make a living at what they're best at. That, to me, is one of the great sadnesses. All right, last question. What's your next project? What is the thing that really interests you a lot? Well, I'm sort of dying for another adventure, actually, Cara. I was hoping you might come up with something. <laughs> there could be a 24-7 Palace News Channel. Well, I have thought about it, actually. But then I thought, do I really <laughs> want to spend the last two decades of my media life, you know, telling the royal story? <laughs> Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. Is produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuelewski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with your very own Corgi, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.